Welcome to the Weekly Juice Podcast, where we discuss all things real estate, personal finance, investing, entrepreneurship, and the many ways to achieve financial independence. We interview accomplished investors and entrepreneurs with the goal that their stories inspire you to take control of your financial future. Here to get your creative juices flowing while also documenting their own personal investing journeys are your hosts, Corey Jacobson and Ryan Bevilacqua. Welcome back to the Weekly Juice Podcast. As always, it's your boys, Corey and Ryan here. Today we had on Pete Reese. He's a real estate investor, agent, and now turned land flipper. Um, He grew up in Lancaster, PA, moved out to California, got into real estate by way of becoming an agent and then started kind of helping people, you know, find homes and investment properties for themselves and then became an investor himself. Fast forward to today, I know you'll probably dive into this, but he started a land flipping company where he literally flips parcels of land instead of like house flipping, which you see everybody, it's super popular today. He built up a business and started in 2021. It, it did, I think around 1.5 in 2020, 2021. And then 2022, last year, he did just about 4 million in revenue. So he's yep. absolutely killing it. And he's such like a, a streamlined niche. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. So we've never talked about land flipping on the show. So it's a cool thing that again, we just haven't touched on. I think one of the things that Pete does is he's really regimented. He's really disciplined. He talks about getting up at like 4 four a.m., working out, that type of thing. He sends out 50,000 mailers a month, which costs him $25,000. But that's able to have him close on that $4 million of revenue at a 50% gross profit. So that means that he's keeping, after everything, about $2 million of that $4 million, like 50% of his revenue is ended up in profit, which is an incredible business model. The land flipping is so unique, but it seems like it's a lot easier than house flipping. At least that's the way that P kind of portrayed it to us. Like they don't do a lot of work to the properties. You listen, he has a, well, it's a parcel of land. Yeah. There's not really even a property. He's just like, he like clears brush and stuff. (laughs) Like buys a a parcel of land. And for a d- deep discounted rate by sending his way of mailer yep. by way of mailers, and then he posts it on the MLS, and someone buys it for a higher price. How about the one he told us about the story? He, I mean, we'll we'll let him tell it. But basically, he bought a property for sixty grand, like didn't even call the normal company that he would call out to clean up, put it on the market for one forty five. It got into a bidding war, sold for one seventy five. So he made a hundred thousand dollars or so after commissions and all that paid out, and he it said he closed in two weeks. So. If you're looking to create active income, this is a guy that potentially reach out to him, see what he see what he's doing, learn from him. That's why we have these episodes. I don't know if it's something that you and I'll dive into, but like what a way to create active income. And then he has a motel. He talks about a lot of different stuff in the episode. Oh, well, the the way he shelters some of his income, he brought when you bring in four million bucks, you need to shelter your income. Mm-hmm. So what he does is just he funnels that cash into more investment properties and just continues to build his portfolio. To your point, he talked about this really cool motel that he bought out in Wisconsin. He's turning it to like little Airbnbs. It kind of thought, you know, was synonymous with what we're doing up in the Poconos. Yeah. And I don't know. I, we we didn't dive that far into it, but it was pretty cool. We talked about Packers for a little bit. So yeah, Pete is Pete is uh, kind of a, a land flipping beast. This is yep. one thing that we have not touched on, as Corey mentioned. So uh, for those looking for something unique, potentially to get into, with it doesn't seem like a ton of overhead outside of the mail, the marketing. Yep, exactly. Um, this might be something you want to dive into. So without further ado, let's bring in Pete. As you know, we talk a lot about financial independence, building revenue streams, and buying yourself more income. Wanted to give our listeners a special opportunity to potentially add a different revenue stream for themselves and into their portfolio. 
Tune into episode 110 to hear Corey and I peel back a couple layers on something that we're investing in currently at the moment. Just gives you a snapshot of where we are in our journey and gives you the opportunity to invest as well. This specific opportunity is to invest in a YouTube content monetization channel. And we go through every single step of the way, how we got involved and all the ins and outs of it. If you're interested, after listening to the episode, feel free to drop us a DM. We're happy to answer any questions that you have and we'll point you in the right direction. Pete, officially welcome to the Weekly Juice Podcast. Corey and I are so excited to have you on the show, man. I know we were talking a little bit pre-recording and uh, diving into your different ventures. You've seen it and done it all in the real estate world. So we're super thrilled to have you on the show and thanks for joining us. Well, I really appreciate you having me here, guys. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. It's going to be an exciting one. So if you could give us a little brief background on yourself and why you decided to jump into real estate, walk us through the story of kind of how you got to today. Yeah, well, I, I guess I guess it kind of goes way back. I mean, I've I've always had a real interest in real estate, and I think it really stems from um, growing up. Um, I actually lived in. We grew up in. Uh, we lived in apartments um, when I grew up. Was growing up, and all my friends had their own homes and and everything like that. And and I always was kind of envious of them. There were some you know advantages to living in apartments. There's lots of kids around and things like that. But I always kind of thought you know like. I, it'd be great to, you know, great to have our own house and my parents. Um, I always tried to talk them into it for, for one reason or another. They were not really interested in that at the time. So anyhow, when I grew up, I knew that was a big goal of mine to actually own my own home. And I guess it started from there. And I always had interest in real estate. I think in high school, I ended up buying Carlton Sheets's program that I saw on TV. It was like this, you know, creative financing stuff. Never really did anything with it. But Went through college, graduated, moved out to California here, met my wife. First thing we did was we bought a home, bought it with an FHA loan, three and a half percent down. So at the time, it was pretty reasonable out here. I mean, I think we paid $195 for the home, um, held it for a couple of years, did some repairs and renovations to the home of myself of very questionable quality. And, uh, <laughs> but end, ended up doing all right. Like we sold it for $250. And ended up with a little chunk of change. And I thought it was a real estate mogul. Um, but we took that money and kind of parlayed that into our next home, which is a little bit bigger and needed more work. But we did really well on that one too. So we decided to start flipping homes. And that was, you know, uh, mid, uh, it was like 2003-ish, somewhere around there. So we started flipping homes and we're doing really well with that. Eventually, the real estate market here crashed. And... Uh, back up a year or so before the crash, I had gotten my real estate license, my broker's license out here because uh, I figured it would help me get access to the deals better because I was buying everything off of the MLS. And I was able to show properties to myself and kind of felt like it gave me the inside track on getting some of the deals. So, uh, but thankfully, you know, after the real estate market crashed, uh, that real estate license actually did me a lot of good because I was able to then sort of transition out of investing, which was a little dicey at that time. And I just focused on being an REO listing broker for banks. So I went through a whole period there where I was, that was my sole focus. I was just listing foreclosures for banks. And those were the only things that were really kind of selling at that point. So, cause they were able to price them right, you know? So I did that. And then it, I transitioned into after that kind of helping other investors find deals. So I knew what they were looking for because I was an investor myself. And I knew kind of what it would take to put some of those deals together. So 
I just uh, just kind of focused on that for some larger companies. And that's all I did for a number of years. Did another company after that with my wife that was completely outside of real estate, but it was about blogging and travel blogging. We were traveling about 150 days out of the year with the whole family of five all over the world. Great time and uh, kind of exhausting though, but we were really successful with that business. And that was, um, that was a fun time, but I got the itch to get back into real estate and um, didn't really know what niche to, to go forward with. I mean, I knew how home flipping and I kind of didn't want to get into that because it's kind of a cumbersome business in a way, at least that's, that's my, um, my view of it, it's hard to really scale unless you've you're really got your systems dialed and you've got great contractors and all that kind of stuff. And I just wasn't too excited about that. But I did some reading. I've, I've stumbled into some stuff about land flipping. And, um, you know, I had never heard of, I, you know, I, I had heard of land flipping, I guess, but I didn't really know what it meant. So I went down this whole rabbit hole, learned everything I could have about it. And, you know, I would see people talking online like, hey, I bought this property for 10 grand and I sold it for 30 grand. And I thought to myself, well, that's a that's a pretty great return. And it's I like the numbers. That's pretty cool. You know, you could do that without getting financing or anything like that. You just just buying and selling. So <clears throat> I um, as I learned everything I could about that. I actually bought a training program. There was a, a provider out there that offered a training program and it taught me quite a bit. Um, they did their business model a little bit different than what I do now, but it gave me kind of the basics of how to evaluate properties and sort of the the basics of the business model. And then I just took it <clears throat> and uh, customized it over time. But I ended up, that was about two years ago, ended up reselling our first property in March of 2021. And, um, our first year, 2021, ended up doing about 1.2 in revenue and about 50% gross profit margin. So on average, wow. we would buy a property and try to double it. You know, that's kind of our, our benchmark. So I was able to kind of hit that the first year. And then 2022, we ended up doing about uh, 3.5 million um, in 2022 and uh, just below 50% gross profit margin again. So, and then 2023 here, trying to do 10 million. So love it. And I think love it. Do it. So. so let's talk about the concept of land flipping. That's kind of like your claim to fame. And Ryan and I, who uh, we were talking <laughs> before the show, and we're like, we kind of know it, but we kind of don't. So like my the, my take on it is like you're literally buying a piece of, of land or a, pro- a property, and are you doing improvements to it, and then selling that like kind of like a flip would be on a on a personal residence or is it like more of a wholesale where you're just kind of taking the title and the ownership of it and kind of flipping it more quickly? Can you just walk us through like how land flipping works for you? Sure. Sure. Here's the basic concept of it. And basically what we do is we're, we're sending out direct mail and I'm sending out actual offers to people uh, in my direct mail. There's a number of different ways to kind of generate the leads, but I'm building a list of certain types of properties in a certain area. And I'm coming up with the average price per acre. And then I'm backing off a certain percentage from there. And we're actually sending out offer amounts to these people. So say it's a 10 acre property, you know, they get an offer for, you know, 3000 an acre when the retail value may be 10,000 an acre, something like that. So that's just a, a oversimplification. But so they get these offers customized to their property, two page letter, one page is kind of explaining who I am, what I could do for them. Second page is actually the a purchase agreement. 
And then they'll either call back, they'll either sign it and send it back, or they'll text us back, or they'll, you know, something like that. But it gets the conversation started. And it may not be the actual price that we end up or agree upon, but that, that gets the conversation started. So we buy the property, to make a long story short, we buy the property through title or escrow. And then we'll do some minor value add stuff sometimes. We might do some clearing some paths. We might get a perk test or a survey, something like that. Sometimes we'll do a minor subdivision where we just get a survey and kind of split it up and sell the parcels individually. But most of the time, it's pretty minor stuff that could be done pretty quickly. And then we'll put it on the market right away and list it for slightly below retail value so that we sell it quickly. So on average, we're holding these properties for only 60 days. And that includes that includes the um, the time period where we're in escrow on on a resale contract as well. Got it. So, so. it's kind of few and far between where we hear t- people talking about land flipping, and and it makes now that I'm hearing how it works. I mean, look, if you're getting a fifty percent gross profit on anything in business, you're doing extremely well. So it seems like a really fruitful business for people to jump into. I'm I'm curious, like, you know, who who's selling these properties at that? so undervalued to you? Is it somebody who's held on to it forever and it's like a paid off asset? Like, Because to me, it seems like they could get a lot more or they just don't know how to sell it. Like what's what's your play there? And not that you're convincing anybody to do it because it sounds like they're looking, but like why sell it to you for so right. low? Yeah. Well, what we offer is a cash quick close situation. I mean, typically land is one of those things that it will generally take some time to sell. And uh, in our, in our situation, we're just kind of offering them that quick close, easy solution. We pay all their closing costs, you know, with the attorney, the title company, any of that type of stuff. We're not asking them to do anything. We're not really asking them for any disclosures or, you know, because most of the time, these people that are selling to us have either owned the property for quite some time, maybe they bought it years ago, and they're just kind of sick of paying the property taxes, and they're looking to sort of... um move on from it. It's kind of out of sight, out of mind. Sometimes they've never even been on the property. A lot of these people have uh, inherited this property and it's just a nuisance, you know, paying these property taxes every year. And they really don't want to hassle with the, you know, putting it on the market with the real estate agent and, you know, maybe, maybe waiting a long time for, to, in order to sell it to, for retail value. So that's, that's kind of our play. It's not a, um, you know, working with us is is not for everyone, but it's for some people. It's kind of like I use the analogy when you have a car that you are, you know, you say you're going to buy a new car and you've got your old car. Are you going to trade it into the dealer? That's the quick and easy way to do it. You know, you're not going to get top value for it, but it's easy, you know, and, and most people opt for that as opposed to, you know, listing it online, getting a detail, getting it ready to retail and everything on their own. Now, obviously, you can get more for it if you do it that way, but um, but it's not the convenient way, that's for sure. Yeah, you're providing a service and people are looking for convenience today. So I think it's, yeah. a, it's an excellent way to get ahead of it. I want to talk about the marketing side of this thing for you too, right? You seem like you have a constant funnel of deals coming in here. And, and for people just to sign these, you must have ordered it the right way. And I like that just like a one-two hit. You have both pages and one's got the PO on the, on the back, the sign. Um, can you talk to... The marketing aspect of this, how many mailers you're sending out per month or per week, what your clip is, and then how much each costs. I'm looking for the, uh, this is just to kind of paint the picture for people that are like, wow, this sounds pretty lucrative, right? How do I set it up for myself if I want to create my own business in this way? 
Yeah. Well, I'm the type that likes to go big. So actually, I send out 50,000 letters per month at this point. Um, Your hand yeah, so, yeah and, it, and it costs me about 50 cents per letter. So that's a pretty big marketing budget every month. But the fact that each deal on average, you know, last year in 2022, we averaged about $22,000 profit per deal. And 20, uh, 2021 is about 20,000 per deal. So it's going up a little bit, but that, um, so each deal costs us about $3,000 a mail. So costs us about $3,000 a mail, which is like about 6,000 letters, I guess you could say, in order to get one deal. So I look at that as a return on investment of like seven times, you know, seven yeah. times, you know, return that's on, a, on that. That's experience. incredible. I mean, there's not a lot of businesses that you can find that. Is this something that you're looking anywhere in the country, like land is land, or do you have a specific niche of of where you're targeting it because you know it better? I imagine it's a little bit different than looking for properties. Like you're not specifically trying to find a three, a three bed, two bath or right. uh, something like that in a specific neighborhood. How do you approach that? when it comes to land. Yeah. Like is there a buy box or do you, is it kind yeah. of very for you? Yeah, definitely. Um, we do focus on certain areas just because a big part of our model is to try to find people on the ground to kind of help us with the evaluation process and, and, um, and also the closing, everything like that. So it, it, it lends itself to us focusing on certain areas, but I would buy property anywhere. And it's just that, we we sort of find areas that we like mailing and we're constantly trying to expand to new areas. So I've got certain areas which know uh, that I know work really well and we're repeatedly mailing those areas. You know, like every three months, generally I'll remail a certain area. And then we're sending kind of test mail out to other parts of the country to kind of get a foothold and establish, you know. And it's weird because sometimes the mail works really well in certain areas and sometimes it just doesn't doesn't work in other areas. And I don't know why that is, but, uh, but it is what it is, I guess. Sure. So Can that's, you... uh, that, that's one thing that, uh, that we try to do, but I would buy properties anywhere. And, and as far as the size of the properties and everything, at this point, we're trying to do larger and larger properties. At the beginning, I was going down to generally two acres was my sort of minimum, but now I've kind of stepped that up In most areas it's 10 acres and some areas it's five acres. I'll go down to, to that. But I like the more rural properties instead of the smaller infill type type lots. Even those those can be very lucrative as well. It's just kind of a different thing, you know. Like those smaller infill type lot lots are, you know, really only one purpose. It's are they buildable or not? And if you can't build on it for whatever reason, then it's not like you're going to um, be riding four wheelers on a, you know, half acre lot or something like that in yeah. some suburban area, you know. Yeah. Couple things here. So, a this one will be a little bit far off from my second question. But my first question is: Are these all just barren lots, or is there sometimes buildings up there that you have to demolish and kind of like clear out when you're like under contract and all that stuff? So, can you talk to how that works? And then I also want to dive into deal finding. Right? You already mentioned you're kind of like a pro deal hunter for when you're early days in real estate, doing it for big companies. Now you have to go out and find land deals. How the heck are you even doing that? Can and then. Can you talk us through that process? If we were looking to do that, like, could we hop on the computer tonight and start like diving in and trying to find deals? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the first question about the structures, as sometimes we do, we do run into properties and buy properties that have older homes on them or mobile homes on them. And it's just kind of dumb luck when that happens. But, but when it does happen, I, I kind of like those properties. They seem to sell 
uh, pretty well. And a lot of times it's like an older farmhouse or something that maybe was just abandoned years ago and it probably has no value, but you know, we, we don't really worry about, you know, scraping that home off or anything like that. It just seems to sell better, you know, with, with something like that on there. So we'll just, we'll just, you know, put it on the market, you know, we'll clean up the brush and everything like that, but we'll generally sell it with the home on there. So it, it does happen from time to time, but it's just kind of random when it does. Cool. Um, and then as far as finding the deals, I mean, our, our strategy right now is all like our deals are all through direct mail. So that's how we generate 100% of our business. It's I'm not saying that you can't find deals in other ways, you know, from wholesalers or just looking on the MLS and trying to generate deals that way. But for for them, you know, for for all of our business, we we use direct mail and it's all off market stuff. So it's so all properties for, that are not listed. With that, how would you ga- gauge when a deal is going to be a good deal, right? I assume 90% of these things, you might just be like, mm, not for me. And like you hone in on that, on that 10%. I'm thinking of a, a source like PropStream. I believe they have, they give you all the data, right? Like who owns the property, when it last sold, what's over, like super intricate details. And then right. you can say, okay, I'm going to filter by X, Y, Z and just hammer those with your 50,000 letters. Right. Do you have a similar program that you use? And, and how do you know, hey, this is my price and I'm going to put this on the offer letter? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good question. Yeah, so what we do is like we um, pull our list through a company called uh, DataTree. It's a first American company. So we pull our list from there. And I just use pretty broad criteria, to be honest. I mean, we're sending out a lot of mail. So if it's an area I like, I mean, we're not really scrubbing out too many different things. You know, like we'll we'll take out all the obvious stuff like utility companies or the railroad or owned by a city or county, like sellers that we know are not going to sell to us. We'll, you know, we'll take those off of the list. Um, We will, you know, obviously filter by the lot sizes that we like, you know, like in most areas from now it's 10 acres or above. So we'll, we'll use that as a criteria, but I'm not, I'm not generally filtering, filtering out like other, other things. Like I know other investors will filter out stuff like, you know, they'll only send absentee owners or they'll only send, you know, people that have owned the property for more than, you know, 10 years or 15 years or something like that. I don't, I don't generally do that. Um, I'll just kind of keep all those in the list and see what happens. Cause my kind of theory on it is that I know that other investors are kind of filtering out some of those people and maybe, you know, maybe there's an opportunity for me to get a deal from someone that, you know, is, is, uh, is one of those people that would generally be scrubbed out of the other list. So that's kind of my thoughts. So when you, you do that scrubbing. Say you get something under, you get under contract. Someone agrees to a price. What's your handoff process to the next guy? Like how, where are you making your margin? I, it's one thing to to have a pool of deals, but then it's to connect the dots, right? Are you using your previous relationships and who are these people you're actually selling to? Yeah. So we put everything on the market, on uh, the MLS. So we'll, a big part of our process is we work with local land brokers, land specialists that will they help us in our due diligence process. You know, when we get a property under contract, we're reaching out to them right away and saying, Hey, what do you think about this property? What do you think you could resell it for? Any red flags that we should be aware of in this area? Kind of really loop them in on the buy process as well. And then as soon as we close on the property, they're obviously getting the listing on the resale side. So we try to make it a win-win. We pay them good commission rate. We generally pay 10% to them in commissions because we want to make it worth their while as well. So they're um, they're really helping us on the due diligence side, and then we're exposing it to as many people as we can by putting it on the market, 
and, you know, seeing what happens then. Yeah. So if I'm listening to this, I'm thinking to myself, well, this seems, you correct me if I'm wrong, Pete, but like, it seems like it's a lot easier than flipping homes. You're not dealing with windows and, and, um, you know, driveways and, and, uh, found, kitchen. Yeah, yeah, contractors, ki- contractors and foundations <laughs> and all the things that can go wrong that, that do in right. flipping. Um, your average profit margin is $22,000. I mean, I think people would love if they could do that on a flip, maybe some bigger companies would, you know, want more, but like, what's my thing is like, is this an untapped market that you've just found your niche in? Why did you decide to go all in on this? Is it really just a lot simpler than the, a lot of the other niches in real estate? I think it's pretty simple, but um, one thing I do have to caution is that you really need to put your time in and kind of learn how to evaluate these properties. And, you know, there's, there's kind of um, it's not, it's not complicated really, but there are certain things you really need to be paying attention to. Like there's a, like, like you had mentioned, Ryan, there's a lot of properties out there that come across as potential deals that we don't buy. And you're probably, you're pretty right on, you were saying 90% of them we kind of pass on. And that's kind of true because it, there's just a lot of properties out there that are not, I, I don't want to be mean to say they're junk properties, but they're kind of not premium properties either. They could be landlocked. They could be all swampland. They could be on the side of a mountain. They could be, uh, you know, just have some neighbors to them that have like a toxic waste dump next to you. I mean, there's all kinds of things that can happen. So you have to really kind of be aware of all those things and really put your time into kind of figuring out, like understanding what makes a good property. And, but once you could kind of get that down and, you know, like I said, part of my system too is kind of looping in the local land specialist brokers. And then we've got that extra layer of like having them evaluate the properties for us. That really helps out quite a bit. So I do think that it's way more of a blue ocean than say land flip. I mean, than say house flipping. I mean, that's kind of the, the red ocean there. Everyone, everyone's doing home flipping and it can, you can still make money on it. There's still deals, everything like that, but kind of everyone knows about that. Land flipping, not so much. There is a whole segment of people that do land flipping. And I think there's a lot of investors that do it in different ways. So I'm sure the way I do it is probably different than the way that a lot of these other people do it, but it's, it's what works for me. And, um, so I, totally. I, I'm a big fan. Yes. I mean, obviously if you do the numbers that doing the numbers that you're doing, so let's paint a picture here for people that are listening, maybe pick a specific deal, uh, maybe your favorite, your most lucrative, whatever that may be, kind of walk us through the the purchase price, what you did to improve the property, how quickly you sold it, what you sold it for, what you're able to walk away with after marketing, kind of just dive into some numbers because if I'm listening to this and I'm trying to figure out what to do in real estate, a lot of people are, what should I do? What, what you know, what niche should I go in? I mean, this is one, at least for the active income side, that can prove to be extremely lucrative. Lucrative, And then if you're trying to be an investor on the back end, do like you did and, and collect some rentals along the way. So paint us a picture of like pick a deal and talk to us about it. Well, here's one that's kind of on the top of my mind because we actually just closed it um, a couple of weeks ago. We're, we're It's in January now. And uh, this was one of the first deals we closed here at the beginning of this year. And this property, we ended up, I think it was um, 30 acres. Yeah, about 30 acres property. It had a big pond on it. It was actually a um, sand pit, they call it. So it was a man-made pond. At one point, someone had dug out 
from the land because there was sand that was being mined there. So it ended up being this this sand pit pond that was on there. It actually makes a really nice pond. They're deep and they're clear and it's groundwater and everything. So anyhow, we bought this property for 60000 and closed on it at the end of, I don't know, I think the third week of December, something like that. Put it on the market right away. I, I, I was going to have our... Uh, company that we work with that does some land clearing stuff. To, there was some brush on the property. They were going to go over there and, and clear it off. But we put it on the market right away before that was done. Instantly had multiple buyers um, contacting my agent about it. We listed it for $149. And um, we had multiple people contacting us and ready to write offers right away. Bottom line is we got it under contract like within a day for $175. And then it sold, yeah, it closed like two weeks later for 175. We paid 60 for it, you know. Obviously, I had commissions and closing costs and everything like that, but we made 90 some thousand dollars and didn't even do anything. It's it's incredible. So you have like a lot of I assume you have cash available to make this happen quickly. I mean, that's part right. of it. You got to build up, build right. that up, be able to afford the twenty five thousand dollars. I believe you said twenty five thousand dollars a month on that one. Yeah. No, I'm saying the twenty five thousand dollars a month that you would pay in mailers, right? Oh, at, oh at the mailers, yes. Right. Yep. So like you have to be able to afford all this, and you can build that up. But I'm thinking like, what was it? What do you think it was about this property that somebody wanted to pay so much more than you did? basically at the same time. And I know it's just part of the flipping game, but like, did they, did, were they going to develop it into like multifamily housing or a park? Like what, what was it to them that they felt like it was a great business decision because you essentially, did, you really didn't do a lot to the property. Like no. it's amazing. No, no I, didn't do, no, I didn't do anything. Uh, you know, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I know that there's, there was a, a lack of inventory in that area, especially of properties that size. So I kind of had a feeling that things, it would sell pretty quickly. I wasn't too sure about how the market was going to react to this, the the big pond on there. I had hoped that it was going to be a big asset and the the broker I was dealing with, I thought that it would be an, a good asset as well. But sometimes you just never know till you list these properties. So it's, it's a little bit of taking a chance. I felt like the value was really there. And thankfully, it just worked out. And there was a couple of buyers competing with each other. And then that's how we ended up with selling it for 25 over asking price. So That's great. It's an amazing deal. Can you yeah. talk to us about your current real estate portfolio and why you have a portfolio at the current moment, even though you're raising such a high clip on your active income side? I think you did. I think you mentioned it's like your second year in the game and you were just about $4 million in income last year. From, yeah, well, from I was hoping it for, I ended up being a little shy of that about 3.5. So, um, but tough year, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, after one point, whatever you had. In two point. years, that's, yeah. it's amazing, really. But so. I was happy with that. But yeah, so there, there's kind of two sides. There's the active income that we're talking about with the land flipping. And so I've got a portfolio on that side as well, like the properties that we are buying that are either um, under contract to resell and then also on the market. So I've got a whole portfolio of that stuff and I've actually built that up to uh, it's over $2 million at that point in, in inventory. That's either probably half of it is under contract to close here soon. And then half of it is on the market to be resold. So I've got that side of things. And then on the other side of things, you know, if you're if you're doing well in any business, you know, if you're generating profit, you've got to um you've got to use some tax strategies to hopefully minimize that if you're interested in that type of thing. So in real estate, you know, one of the big 
one of the big benefits, especially if you are a real estate professional, um, is that you can buy rental properties and then use those to offset your your active income. So, and that's what we've been doing. We've been trying to accumulate rental properties. We bought a motel property. Uh, we bought a number of different, you know, rental type units as well. And uh, yeah, just been trying to to accumulate those uh, as the kind of wealth building side of things that we're not planning on selling or flipping anything like that. Just kind of holding long term. It's really cool. So, T- tell us about this motel. We haven't talked about yeah. the motel in a while. Well, I'm it's curious on- it's it's a really interesting property. It's actually in uh, Wisconsin, so it's more of a I call it a motel. That's what it's zoned as and everything, but it's really a collection of little cabins. So it's a it's a big duplex house on there, and then there's 16 individual cabins on the property, and the the property has actually been run as a motel uh, property for since I think it was the 30s or 40s, like very old. And when we bought it, it was just completely, you know mismanaged. And I think we had one star on Google and stuff like that. Um, Needed a lot of work, right? And the work at this point, the work is not done yet. But it's been kind of a longer term project that we're trying to plan out and get that done. We started um, taking the units one by one, starting to renovate them and everything. But uh, we'll be done with that, I think, in the next six months or so, hopefully have everything renovated. And we'll probably run it as all like, uh, you know, little Airbnbs. So it's that a big tourist question. area, Wisconsin. Yeah. It's funny um, that you say that because we it, it's similar to us. We're, we're limited partners, but we're limited partners in a, a seven unit and then a 43 unit in the Poconos in Pennsylvania, which I'm sure oh, you're yeah. familiar with yeah. because you're from Lancaster, as you mentioned. So um, it's a, a tourist destination where we'll do short-term rentals. And we're doing a very similar project to you where we renovated it in the process right now, like right. of the 43 units, I think three are online right now. They're starting to get <laughs> yeah. ramped up. It's great. So this place in Wisconsin, it's like a, it's like a mountain type or like a, what, what are people that would go there to do vacations? Is that like, yeah, it's a near green yeah, Bay. I'm thinking Packers. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's a couple hours South of green Bay. It's in an area. Well, um, there's an area in Wisconsin. It's called Wisconsin Dells. And they call it the water park capital of the of the U.S. But anyhow, they've got all these big water parks. In the summer, the place gets to be like an absolute zoo. It's like craziness. Really cool, but but craziness. This is a town just outside of there. It's called Baraboo, Wisconsin. And it's just a really scenic, beautiful area that um, over the summertime really gets crazy. And there's also a play there, too, for um, winter-type um, activities as well. Snowmobiling is really big around there. There's a couple of big lakes there. People do cross country skiing, you know, all kinds of different stuff there. It's hiking in, in the summertime as well. So it's really busy in the summertime off season. Um, there's a, there's a need there because there isn't a lot of, um, lodging that's, that's set up at that time. So. Very cool. It's, uh, you're kind of have the, the, formula here that we we've talked about a number of times on our podcast where it's like if you can create an active income strategy it within the real estate investing game you learn so much about the other strategies that are possible right so you have your active income strategy you're able to live off of it uh, i mean you've had other businesses in the past so i'm sure you're you're potentially living off of multiple streams of income but the point is you're able to live off the active and then you go reinvest it into properties that cash flow and the short-term rental airbnb thing is is very popular right now it's able to cash flow even more so you take that money you reinvest it grow your wealth it's like this is if 
for us, Ryan and I are doing this a, a little bit differently because we don't make a lot of active income in the real estate investing game. We're, we're actually starting to, and we'll talk about how that's happening in some upcoming episodes, but making the active income from our W-2 jobs, from selling, from connecting dots, and then putting it into the passive income. And I say passive in air quotes because it's not always passive, <laughs> <Yeah>. but, <laughs> but putting that into that, that grows your wealth, you get the tax benefits, and then you can hopefully get some cash flow too. That's the goal. So I love the strategy. I think that if people are looking to get involved, what what would you recommend specifically the land flipping? Because we talk about the the, the cash flowing real estate all the time. But if somebody was looking to get involved today, now two years ago is not that long ago, but what would you tell them based on how you got started? First thing I would do is to kind of take a real deep look at what's maybe possible within the business. Um, I would suggest, I mean, I've got a website up that's turningprofit.com where every month I do an income report where I break down like each month, how much revenue we took in, how much profit we made, every single deal that we resold that month, I kind of break it down, like what we paid for it, what we sold it for, how many days we held it for. And I give as much detail as I can about all those particular deals. But, you know, like when I started, I was telling you that, you know, I'd see people talking about like, oh, i I bought this property for 10,000 and sold it for 30,000, but it was just some guy on the internet. And I had no idea if it was reality or, <laughs> you know, or just some guy trying to to brag about something. But so this is, um, this is kind of my way of being transparent, showing what's maybe possible with the business model and the way that I do things. Like I said, there's other ways to, to do things and, you know, different, different ways that people are successful. I know that, but this is the way I do things. And, um, it's uh, it's pretty insightful, I think, if you're kind of thinking, well, that could, that you know, that might work for me. I, I would first look at those types of things and see what's um, what's maybe possible, and then kind of try to get an idea of like, does that type of investing kind of align with your skill set? Because it's not for everyone, you know. You gotta you gotta be a little bit of a risk taker in a way that you you know you gotta be willing to put some of your money to risk at risk and. See if you can, uh, you know, be confident in your evaluations and and just go for it at some point. You know, you got to be you got to be willing to risk some money to to send out that mail. You know, and and you know, hopefully that it's going to produce some some deals for you. So, um, I would start with those income reports and, and go from there. So, I'm curious, what are your future goals then, Pete, with the business? I know you mentioned that you, correct me if I'm wrong, over doubled your income from year one to year two. You right. said 10 million this coming year. Right. I love it. I love the the lofty goals. Is this something that you think, because you've kind of bounced around in different real estate niches, is this something, is this like your next 20 years, 15 years, or do you think that you'll get good at this and hire somebody else to help you and move on to something else? What What do you, what's the next three to five maybe look like for you? Yeah, definitely. I'm trying to scale this company as big as I can. I've actually got a lot of people working for me at this point. I've brought on a lot of team members and sort of, been building this over the last couple of years. So I built out a pretty good team. And, you know, obviously the, the, like we talked about the goal for this year is to do 10 million, which I really feel like I can. It's a matter of doing bigger deals, sending out more mail and uh, just kind of keep keeping the ball rolling, expanding into, to more areas, which I, yeah, I don't, I don't see why I can't hit that. But, um, and then going forward, I mean, um, I don't know what my, I don't know what my projection would be for 2024, but I know it's going to be a lot more than than what I do in 2023. And just keep it, 
just keep it rolling and, and expanding as much as possible. And my, my goal is to kind of um, just sort of be on the uh, doing less of the day-to-day stuff and kind of train people to do a lot of the stuff that I'm doing right now. So I'm on my way, but I still, at this point, I mean, I'm, I'm doing a lot of day-to-day stuff. So there's still a lot of things that I could, I could be farming out sure. that I should be farming out. So. Okay, cool. So I think we've made it to the second to last segment of our show, which is called the core four. And in this question, in this segment, we're going to ask you some questions, get, get to know you a little bit more personally. And kind of what makes you tick? Because you got a lot going on. You've seen a lot in the real estate game. Being in, being in real estate for 20, you mentioned around 2000, right? 23 years, you've seen some ups and downs. Um, actually, really quick before we get to the core four, because we don't have a lot of people on who are have invested for as long as you have. What do you see in the market just from your point of view in 2023 and 2024? Do you think that there's going to be some major crash coming up that, you know, there's a lot of fear mongering going on out there. Uh, before we get to the core four, I'm curious what, what your take is, especially because you're so active on that side. Yeah. Well, what I could tell you is that I don't know where specifically things are going to go, but I've got a pretty good feeling about how things are going to turn out. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of experts and people, you know, talking about, oh, this crash is going to happen or whatever. And it's, you know, no one really knows for sure. So <laughs> There's just so many different variables and no one really can predict it. But what I can tell you is that the crash that happened in, you know, 2007 to 2009, that felt completely different than where we're at right now. I mean, that was a, that was a crazy time. People were getting loans that had no business getting loans. I mean, they were, you know, uh, 100% loans too, like yep. no down payment. Over you know, that, 105% getting... loans I've seen. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And a lot of yeah. these like 80-20 loans. So 80% first mortgage, 20% um, second mortgage, and it was done concurrently. So there was no down payment. So there was a lot of that stuff going on. And a lot of, I don't know if you'd call it fr- uh, mortgage fraud or whatever, but there was a lot of people that, you know, probably shouldn't have gotten that that mortgage in the first place. And then we had a couple of big banks that went under and that was like flipping a switch. And think when that happened, it's like the values, at least in California here, they they kind of fell off a cliff, you know? And then when they they reset so quickly like that, you know, there's properties that we were, you know, I I was showing, um, I was, I remember I was showing a someone that was interested in buying a home. I was like helping them like try to find a home to buy. And they were looking around and all the homes were like 550. And then it crashed. And then those same homes were like 250 to 300 range, like in a month, it was just nuts. And like, everything went down like 50%. Yeah. And that caused a lot of other problems. Because then people were like, well, wait a second, I owe 500,000 on this home. And it's now worth 250. I'm never gonna, it's, it's never gonna make sense for me to like, hold on to this home. So then they would do these strategic defaults. And it just like, spiraled out of control yeah so so go ahead yeah i was just gonna say it feels completely different now i mean obviously interest rates are going up it's causing home values uh to soften in a lot of areas um but the other thing we have to keep in mind is too over the last couple years we had a big spike too in value so over the last couple of years and maybe went up in a lot of areas you know 20 30 percent conservatively and even if we correct back that 20 or 30%, you know, to where we were a couple of years ago, 
uh, I don't think it's the end of the world, especially if you have a long term, you know, perspective on things. So totally. I do see I do see a potential softening in some areas, but I don't see a crash like that. Yeah, I think it's already happened and are happening. Right. It depends where you live and, uh, you know, right. what what people it's funny when everyone talks about the crash, the crash, the crash. It happened so fast. 2007, 2008. I, I was uh, 16 years old, by the way. I wasn't investing, so I don't really know anything. But I, I read up a lot about it. It happened so fast, especially in your area, that it already isn't happening. Happen already what happened isn't happening so it's like it's uh it's very different um and it's kind of a funny story I, I know somebody who's a real estate investor today just an idea of how crazy it was back then they had a loan that like they couldn't pay and the banks just never came after them like oh. they just let it go and just like they're like like kind of like a medical bill that just like went away so that's <laughs> how wild it was like literally the wild west so um, I don't think any of that's happening today. It's very strict. I'm trying to buy property all the time. And, you know, it's 10% down vacation, 25% down DSCR. Like you can't get into a property for yeah. no money today, which is what flipped everything upside down. So, yeah. And, you know, a lot of the protections have been put in place with the loan processes that they have in now because of the, this, the crap that happened, you know, back then. So yeah. it's, you know, I, I think that, you know, it's obvious it's it's normal to have real estate cycles, ups and downs and everything like that. I think that was an extraordinary time, you know, that that crash. And I don't think any downturn or recession is going to be exactly like like that one. I think that was pretty extraordinary. But like yeah, I, said, I think everybody <laughs> associates a recession with the most recent thing that they know. And they're like, yeah. here comes the next one. It's like, well, there's been a recession every eight to 10 years. And that's the only yeah. time real estate values have went down is like one of those eight to 10. So it's, it's very, it's interesting to me. And I, I've kind of been doing a lot of thinking and researching on it because it affects us. So I'm yeah. still very optimistic and we're still looking to buy. So if that, if yeah. that makes anybody listening feel better. First question of the core four is what is your favorite real estate investing or business book that has helped kind of guide you or provided an extreme amount of value to you and your investing journey? Yeah, well, you know, I know everyone probably says rich dad, poor dad, and that's a that's a great one. Obviously, um, it's a pretty fundamental book. If you're going to think about real estate investing, it's definitely one you should check out and it makes you kind of think about things in a different way. Um, my favorite book that I've been that I've read lately that really doesn't have a lot to do with real estate investing, but more of business, big picture business type things is it's called a hundred million dollar offers. I don't know if you guys have heard that one, but it's more of a a marketing type book. But it's um there are some things that from that that I've taken into my own business that have uh, been very helpful. So that that's a really cool. good one. Cool. Love it. Question two, let's say Ryan and I were feeling really generous. We're generous guys, not this generous, but let's say we gave you a hundred thousand dollars today tax-free. What would you do with that money? Would you invest it, spend it? Would it go into your business? It, knowing what you know now about tw uh, entering 2023? Yeah, I'd, I'd put it towards some land deals. So I, I mean, I think I could multiply that pretty quickly to a lot more than 100,000. Love it. Simple enough. Third question to core four is, what's been your biggest mistake you've made along your investing journey and how have you learned from it? I think the biggest mistake that we've made is the getting out of kind of real estate investing after the last crash. I mean, that that's when we should have been doubling down and buying more properties, but it kind of spooked us from it for, for a long time and uh, really didn't get back into real estate investing 
personally ourselves. I mean, we had, pro- we've owned properties and things, um, you know, the whole time, but it's not, we hadn't didn't get back into active real estate investing until two years ago. So that, that's the biggest mistake for sure. Lost a lot Got of it. money in opportunity for sure. Yeah. Yeah. From, you know, 2000, even, you know, even if it was six years, 2014 to 20, like there's the amount of appreciation that's happened, but oh, yeah. um yeah, you live and you learn, and pretty good climb back four million bucks yeah. last year. Yeah. Not so bad, dude. Not so bad. <laughs> That's good. good. You doing all right. Yeah. Um, great. So, question four. So, Pete, you've traveled the world with your family. You've done a lot of cool things. You've built multiple businesses. Um, doing all that, you could, sitting here making it sound easy too, which is which I know it hasn't been, unless I'm missing something. So, my question for you is. What gets you out of, up out of bed every morning? Like, what what do you want your legacy to be if you have one? What what why do you do what you do? Well, my main my main concern is being a good dad to my kids, and my kids are older now, but they're twenty two, twenty, and thirteen. So, I guess just being a great example from them, I try to lead by example. I try to be as consistent as possible in everything I do. You know, like every single day, my schedule is pretty much the same. Wake up at 4.50 in the morning, go work out. You know, I pretty much, everything about, everything about my life is pretty regimented. You know, like I'll eat the same thing every day, most days, you know. And, uh, you know, just uh, just try to be as healthy as I can and work hard in our business and try to build, you know, something um, that's that's lasting, I guess. But yeah. but that's really the main thing, you know, is family and taking care of my family. That's That's really what. That's really what motivates me. Awesome. Uh, I have a, a good friend who is a strength and conditioning coach at a local university, and he sent me a uh, workout regimen. I do it four days a week. I don't make excuses. I do it every week. That's not probably not enough, but I feel great. And on the card is written consistency over intensity. So you kind of spoke to that. Like, you know, if you work out extremely hard one day a week, like that's probably not going to get you very far. But if you're that's doing right. four to five and you're being consistent while still pushing yourself, and this applies to business life, raising a family, you're consistent with your kids. I don't, neither I nor I have kids, but that's a future thing. Like if you're consistent and you keep plugging away, like you said, you know, you look, you're able to look back as opposed to trying to intensify things and ramp up for a month and burn out. It's, uh, I love the message. I use it every day. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is that really translates into my business too. And I've, I see other investors kind of making the same mistake. I mean, for us, it's all about the leads and the deals coming in. So we generate all our leads and deals with the direct mail. And a lot of investors, and well, first of all, we're like highly, highly consistent about sending out the same amount of mail each month, you know, 50,000 letters each month, like clockwork. And first, uh, of the month, 25,000 letter, 25, letters, 15th of the month, 25,000 letters. And um, so I know that that's what, that's the engine that drives our business. And I see a lot of other investors, they'll maybe send out a big batch of mail. They'll get really busy because the phone's ringing. They've got all this activity going on. And, you know, a month later, they'll look around and say, oh, I should send out some more mail. Then they start getting it together. And it's been another, you know, couple of weeks until they get another batch of mail out. And then, you know, there's these like roller coaster, always a roller coaster. And they never are building that consistency that they need to really push the business forward. But I think, I think it's business like this is, is pretty simple in that if you can just may, remain super consistent about sending out that, that mail, getting those leads coming in, then everything else will take care of itself. 
Yeah, I think that applies to every every aspect of life. Um, yeah. Kind of what you touched on, but uh, I heard the quote. It's so simple, but I love it. And something I'm living by for this year is done is better than perfect. Like, just get it yep. done, dude. And show That's up. That's a change for me, by the way, too. Like, you you know, like I've known you to be a perfectionist, too. So, like, being able to, because you want everything done right. But, like, it's yeah. a cool quote to hear. It's something that, that I need to, to yeah. it's, it's probably something. The quote's not from your book, but it's something that you do. You just kind of like you're you're rapid fire, you're really quick with things. And for me, I'm getting better at that. Well, this year I'm a savage at it, but now <laughs> it's because I just I can't wait anymore. But I, I had a real problem with like getting myself outside of the business. And I was like too far in the weeds to whether it be content or specific things that I liked. And I'm like, ooh, you know, this isn't a good reflection of us, but it's it's not getting us that much further ahead. So it's funny. I think about this all the time when it comes down to our, our podcast episodes, right? Or um, investing in real estate or um, building our businesses, like just showing up every single day. We were talking about before the show and we were like, you're going to be episode 140 something. And that's a long time to do episodes. That's like three years. And we yeah. just never stopped. We're just like, even if there's some days that are tough and it's late night and you're, you, you just grind it out of a full day's work and a workout, you're like, got to do it. Like, I don't know. Yeah. It's it's helped us so, so far. Um, in ways we never thought imaginable, kind of to what we were talking about pre-episode and just like the connections we've made. And it wouldn't have been possible without just showing up every day. Yep. So uh, I fully believe in that. And I think it's a good message for people out there who are just like, they keep getting stuck. They'll do a ton of work and then they never actually go do the, th- the thing. Should they just like have an idea or they want to perfect it so much that just nothing gets done. They just, it just comes too much of a burden for them. So it's a, a lot to think about, but I love that talking about consistency is key, right? That's like the main thing. I think if anyone can take anything away from this episode, it's just like keep hitting the hammer and eventually it's going to work out. You'll get better over time and you just learn to adapt. I think humans are just so good at that. So thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. I mean, it's so controllable too. Like that's one thing you're like, you you, got to focus on what you control can control and you can control your consistency. You know, I mean, sometimes it's uncomfortable. Like you said, like you don't feel like doing whatever it is you need to do, but you know, it's, it's a mindset thing. You just, you just can't give in. You know, Mike Tyson said, uh, you know, talent is nothing without you are nothing without discipline. Like it doesn't really matter how good you are at something. If you can't do it, uh, what something that you hate, like you love it. And that is like the, all the things that we hate to do. Some of it's like too much of a burden and you can hire other people The who, not how that's not really what I mean. But some of the things that you're like, it's pressing in your mind and you're like, I have to send this email or I have to do this. And the, and then you do it and you feel better, even though you've been putting it off and putting it off. It's like run towards the stuff that's harder. At least that's how I feel it, it's worked for us. The more we run towards the harder stuff, the easier it actually gets. So I, I love that. And uh great sentiment there. So. Yeah, <laughs> it's great stuff. Um, it's the last drop. Oh, yeah. Great. Sorry, yeah. dude. Last question. All right. All good. So, Pete, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give your younger self if you could maybe talk to your 18-year-old self or 20-year-old self before you got started and everything? What would you tell them? I think I would tell my 18-year-old self to kind of find a business model that's proven and just go all in on it um, and not try to um, not try to reinvent the wheel, I guess, I guess you could say. I mean, you know, I've, I've, I've been guilty of in the past thinking, oh, I've got to come up with this great concept for a business or something really revolutionary or whatever the case may be. But the, the thing is, like, there's so many different proven business models out there, whether it's in real estate investing or anything, really. And there's lots of people that are really smart people that have figured it out. 
And if you take the time to study what they've been doing and find something that kind of aligns with what what your skill set is, and then just just repeat it. Don't try to freelance anything. Just do exactly what that business model is. Uh, you could be successful if you pick the right opportunity. Now, if you're I, you know trying to sell something that people don't want to buy, then you know that's not the right opportunity. But I really like that, and that kind of goes. It's it's interesting that you mentioned this, but we read books all the time, right? Or someone's like, "Hey, here, go go read this book." There's some someone wrote an amazing how to on how to run this business. So there's a book called the um, the book on rental property investing by by Brandon Turner. We read the book, we implemented it, and it's great. It's worked out for us. We now we're real estate investors. But then there's there's so many other things too, like there's books on how to become an Airbnb investor. Like if you just pick a niche and you do exactly what it says, it's telling you what to do. A lot of people will read the book and be like, oh, that sounds great. But it goes to taking the notes, building out your own system, and then just mirroring it. It's going to be your own twist if you brand it and do all that stuff. There's so much you learn on a day-to-day basis, but to the framework right, of what you're saying, right. just pick one and go all in on it. It's so hard today with social media and you see, and you hear a bunch of these podcasts, right? You have a specific land flipping niche. Someone might hear that and Corey and I have seven other things going on. We're like, oh, maybe we should get into land flipping. It's it's almost too much. You just have to pick yeah. a lane, stick to it and perfect it and go on. And then if you can pull yourself out of it, then you can jump into the next thing. But um, I think it's it's great advice. Perfect. So. Yeah, Pete, we, um, we really appreciate your time, man. It's been cool to get to know you, learn about you, your story. Sounds like you're doing awesome stuff. So if people want to learn more about you, they want to get in touch, they like the episode, well, what's the best way for people to get in contact with you? Yeah, definitely. Best way is to go to turningprofit.com. And that's where all those monthly income reports are posted. I also have something on there, which I filmed, which is our 50 first deals. So basically, I break down the first 50 deals we did in the land business. So that's, uh, I think, pretty insightful as well. But obviously, you can find and it's linked all over the site, you can find us on YouTube. Uh, I've got a bunch of content on there. We have a podcast that we just launched at the beginning of the year here, which is all about real estate investing. Obviously, we're going to be talking about, a lot about land flipping and digging into some other areas of, of uh, real estate investing as well. And uh, yeah, all over social media and, and uh, all the different platforms. So wherever your home is, uh, we'd love to we'd love to see you there. So, cool. Pete, been a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thanks, guys. Really appreciate it as well. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Weekly Juice Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, subscribe, and share with friends. The more ratings we get, the more ears we'll get on our show. And in turn, we'll be able to provide you with more high-quality guests. You can also find us on Instagram at Weekly Juice Pod, where we post daily tips and tricks and document our own journey towards financial freedom. Make sure to tune in every Wednesday to get your weekly juice.